You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with its sister sites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus, The Driven. And joining me as he does every week is David Leach from ITK. David, um, I trust you are well. Well, I've had a nice relaxing day today, Giles, flying model aeroplanes after all the excitement of last night's New South Wales election, which we're going to talk about. And on top of that, we've... uh, Got a great guest uh, to talk about offshore wind around the world once again. Yes, absolutely. Yes, um, um, it's probably about time they started building stuff. But look, we'll get to the New South Wales election in part two of this podcast. But first, as you suggest, we do have a great guest. It's Jonathan Cole, the Chief Executive Officer of Corio, which is effectively the offshore wind outfit from the vast Macquarie Group. And um, they've got very big plans in Australia and overseas. And let's get straight into the interview with Jonathan Cole. Jonathan Cole, a CEO of Corio Generation. Thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be with you both. Corio Generation is part of the um, the GIC. It's owned by Macquarie. It operates as a standalone business, I understand. So it gives a bit of a description of what it is and um, maybe give us a bit of a clue as to what Corio means. Sure. Right. So... So Corio Generation is, as you say, a standalone company, portfolio company within the Macquarie Group. We exist really for one reason, and that is to develop and build and operate offshore wind projects all over the world. Uh, We were created about a year ago, uh, on the 1st of April 2022. Uh, And really, we were created out of our recognition within Macquarie that um, in order to really take advantage of the opportunities in offshore wind and to really play a part in the offshore wind sector, what we actually needed was to take a more industrial approach where we could combine the scale of the portfolio that Macquarie had had managed to to accumulate with the ability to source capital that Macquarie has in, I guess, an unrivaled way and bring alongside that this industrial capability that Corio now has. And we've got 250 offshore wind industry experts already working within the company on these projects. So that's uh, who we are as Corio. The name Corio is not as some people um, think named after the town Corio uh, here in Australia. It's actually a derivative of the Coriolis effect, which of course is something quite relevant to our, our industry and our technology. You have accumulated then a very sizable portfolio. You say it's one of the biggest in the world. It's 20 gigawatts. Um, you haven't, I mean, as you say, you've only just started a year ago, so you haven't bought, bought any brownfields projects. Everything is greenfields. Um, when do you expect and where do you expect to actually get your first project to the point of financial close, to the point of construction and up and running? So we, we, we launched Corio, uh, as I say, just about a year ago. At the time of launch, we were working on a portfolio of about 15 gigawatts. Actually, already today, 
that's now up to more than 30 gigawatts of projects that we're working on in various stages of origination and development all around the world. So we've grown remarkably quickly in that first year. Um, now, that, that portfolio is quite well spread geographically um, between you know, some of the mature markets in Europe, uh, quite a lot going on here in the APAC region and in Australia, uh, as well as in North and South America. Um, the, the, probably the most advanced project that we will be getting to financial close and building is in Taiwan. So we participated in an auction process at the end of last year, um, at the end of 2022 in Taiwan, and we were awarded um, one of the projects in that process. In fact, we were awarded the highest capacity out of all the bidders in that process, so a 600 megawatt project that we expect to take through to FID next year and then be building that in 2026. And what about Australia then? You've got two projects here, both um, either side, I think, um, of the Wilson's Promontory in um, Victoria. I guess the most advanced one is the one in the Gippsland area uh, region. That's the first renewable energy zone. Um, what can you tell us about that project? I mean, it's obviously quite big. I think it's two and a half gigawatts, but maybe that's sort of subject to sort of further change. You seem to be competing with a lot of others and sort of a bit like a... Um, well, I don't know whether you call it a turf war out in sea, but I mean, it's a bit like sort of trying to mark off your areas and you're waiting to see, I understand it, if you are one of the projects that is actually invited to do a full feasibility study. That's right. So we are working on a two big projects, actually, in, in the Gippsland area, the Great Eastern Offshore Wind Project and the Great Southern Offshore Wind Project. So the Great Eastern is the first of those two. It's within the declared area. Um, and as you see, it's going to be two and a half gigawatts in size. We've been working on that for quite a while now, for a few years, and we've been you know, doing a lot of engagement in the community and doing a lot of feasibility studies already to you know, just check that project and, and you know how good it is. And yeah, we are we're preparing for our feasibility license application to be made in April for the 2,500 megawatts. So we're very um, you know quite excited about the prospect actually of building a project here in Australia. I mean, I don't know how much you know about Macquarie's involvement in offshore wind, but Macquarie's been one of the most relevant players in the global offshore wind sector, one of the early movers financially. And we've actually got a lot of expertise um, in offshore wind. And what's quite nice, actually, is we've managed to bring back some of those uh, um, you know, players that have been working overseas on projects back home to Victoria, uh, where they can now work on developing an offshore wind industry in their home territory, which is really exciting for them and for us. Jonathan, just uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, about Corio and uh, and it's uh, who who actually owns it and what are what are the shareholdings as a shareholder shareholdings? Sure. So the the, the company is actually one hundred percent owned by uh, Macquarie, so owned by the Green Investment Group, which is a you know a part of Macquarie that specialises in green energy investments. Um, but then what we do actually is a what the projects that we're working on, we then invite a, you know, on an asset by asset, project by project level, other investors into the project. So we have, you know, most of our projects are being done in joint ventures with other shareholders. And we have quite a sizable um, deal that we've done with the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, who are also co-investing 
on our projects in the early development, which that that was quite a big deal actually, because what 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 that what that was was really the first time you saw a large pension plan getting into offshore wind at such an early stage in the development stage and providing such big sums of equity into projects just to seed the development portfolio, which is is important because I think what a lot of people overlook with offshore wind is offshore wind. Is, is a game really of deploying massive quantities of development expenditure over quite a long period of time. So you need to have the ability to access quite patient capital while you develop these big portfolios. And I think you know, bringing in the Ontario teachers to invest in some of our assets alongside us showed our ability to actually source the kind of capital you need to be a big scale player in offshore wind. So, yeah, just uh, a little more on that, if you don't mind. I mean, Ontario's come in. How much have they uh, put in? And it's only for some... I mean, as you, the way you describe it, it's a project finance model. So they've got a share in some specified projects, do they? But if Corio gets some new projects, then they don't get buy-in rights. So, but anyway, let's just start with how much they've actually put up so far. The, the arrangement is a long-term sort of strategic um, you know, development partnership that we've set up with them. So the, the, the actual the facility could allow for up to $2 billion US to be invested in development of projects. So not investing in building anything, but just investing in seeding this development portfolio. When we you know, initially closed the partnership, we had earmarked um, around 15 projects that would be initially put into the partnership and they would come in and take a share of all of those. And then we have an arrangement where as we bring in new opportunities and we find new projects in other markets, we you know, can offer them to, 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 to come and join us again on the same basis. And then you know, it's up to them to make that decision on a case-by-case basis. But the idea here is that this is you know, an initial cooperation on 15 projects that will then grow into a much bigger portfolio. And it initially focuses on a couple of billion dollars of development expenditure, but it will turn into tens of billions of dollars of capital deployed to actually build these offshore wind projects. And, and, and so uh, at the moment, I mean, uh, would it, can I say that they get 50% of that specified portfolio? Is, uh, I mean, you, you know, and more therefore, or less, that, yeah. That... I mean, there, there's a couple of variations, but more or less the yeah, idea yeah, yeah. is that they come in um, 50-50 alongside us in each of these assets. So that, that, that broadly uh, values that portfolio at, at $4 billion then uh, US, more or less, uh, before... Uh, and, and Corio's got, you said, something like 250 uh, headcount at the moment? Yeah, well, so we, we, well, first thing just to say is that that 2 billion is not just for, you know, the first day some invested. That, that, that's a facility, if you like, to, to also cover some future projects. So it's not as straightforward as saying that the, the initial seed portfolio was worth two times 2 billion. But, you know, I mean, it is, it's, it's a big number if you were to value that portfolio on its first day. In terms of our, our, our organisation, yeah, so we launched the business a year ago. We were about 90 people when we launched. More or less about half of those people when we launched were coming from the, the Macquarie um, you know, kind of banking side, investment banking side, and the other half were more technical um, industrial people. And then as um, the years progressed, we brought in a lot of people from across the industry. So we're now at about 250 people. 
and probably if we have this conversation a year from now, we'd be more like 350 people. And and the people that are coming in are coming in from, you know, across the industry. So coming in from the other, you know, big developers, from the big uh, turbine manufacturers, from the big engineering houses, people with, you know, a lot of experience uh, already in offshore wind, you know, developing and operating projects all over the world. And so, Jonathan, you said you've you've been awarded one six hundred uh, megawatt project, but I mean, if you were if you know, what does your plan budget uh, assume you'll have in um, megawatts reaching FID in say three years time? Well, yeah. So we, we've we've actually got a, a very um, you know busy period coming up. So we we've been awarded this project in Taiwan. We're also working. Uh, on a project in in Ireland, um, which will go into an auction process later this year, um, which will be you know around 400 megawatts probably. We're working on um, two huge projects in the UK: one in England, one in Scotland. The English one is about one and a half gigawatts, the Scottish one about two and a half gigawatts, and those projects are working towards making their um, permit submissions at the end of this year. We're also working on a, a floating um, project, or actually a portfolio of floating projects in South Korea. Uh, and the, the, the first of those is, is 1,500 megawatts, split into three phases. And we're expecting the first phase of that to go through the permitting uh, and PPA process uh, by the end of next year. So over the next sort of 18 to 24 months, uh, we're probably going to have sort of five to six gigawatts of projects having been through the permitting and PPA process and then getting ready to be built you know, before the end of the decade. And, and and actually, that's just the start. We've also got opportunities we're looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let, let's just deal with the start at the moment. So that, that in itself is, you know, I don't know, taking into account recent cost increases, which have been substantial throughout the whole industry probably we're talking about 15 us billion more or less of uh, all up capital expenditure should you all those uh, permits actually turn into transactions and and construction yeah i mean absolutely i mean you're probably talking uh, i mean not actually more than i mean the total capital cost to build out just those projects i mentioned is probably going to be closer to 25 billion dollars us um, you know, so you know that's obviously split between us and joint venture partners, but that that yeah, yeah. in a value of the, the the portfolio that we're working on right now and the amount of capital that we will need to deploy um, and manage in order to get those projects built. And and and, and what do you think about the? Uh, I, I take it they're all um, uh, fixed offshore wind uh, at the moment. Well, as I mentioned, the, 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 one of them, which is the projects in South Korea, um, it would actually be floating. The rest are fixed. So in our portfolio right now, which, as I said, is about 30 gigawatts, um, I know, uh, probably about 80% of it is fixed foundation. Uh, but there is quite a relevant amount of projects in there which are floating. And we do see you know, the kind of medium to long-term potential in floating. But, most sure enough, but I, I just wanted to uh, look a little bit at the, uh, you know, cost of capital. I mean, $25 billion, no matter how it's split up, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a reasonable chunk of money. And I just, uh, you know, wondered about how you thought about the cost of capital. Oh, let me just ask that very simply, the difference. I mean, what, what, what goes into it when you think of those projects? Obviously, the 
PPA counterparty is the number one thing, but but what else goes into it when you think when you think about the risk associated with a project? Well, I mean, I guess what we are looking for when we're making these decisions is, you know, first thing we're looking for projects that are in markets with a, a very high degree of regulatory um, stability. So, you know, projects which are, you know, supported in markets where the regulations are well thought out and well implemented. Um, second thing, obviously, we prefer is markets which have quite stable macroeconomic conditions. Um, and uh, we're then looking, obviously, at projects which are good physical projects that you know make sense to be built that can deliver low-cost electricity, competitively costed electricity that then makes sense to feed into that particular electricity system. And and I think if you get those things right, then what you're left with then is just the technical challenge of you know engineering it, procuring it, building it, operating it. And that's something that we're you know increasingly comfortable with because we've got a lot of expertise in doing that already all over the world. Uh, I, I'll just quickly hand I'll hand back to Jaws very shortly. But I just you mentioned the technical uh, challenges and supply chain issues as if it wasn't a big deal, but across the industry. Actually, it is a big deal. You know, the European wind manufacturers uh, are, are largely unprofitable or not profitable enough. And the same would go for General Electric. Um, there's been very well documented cost increases. Uh, that's one question. I've got another question, but just how, how are you thinking about that first one? Well, I mean, I think it's a really important point, David. I think we've got ourselves in a little bit of a bind as an industry where for many years, we were living with this um, you know, effectively existential challenge, which was we had to demonstrate that we could bring the cost down um, in order to really be able to participate in the energy transition. So a lot of effort in offshore wind was about driving you know, up the technology gains so that we could, you know, driving up the in, kind of in, industrial footprint and the economies of scale so that you could drive down the cost. Um, and, and you know we were incredibly successful on the one view in doing that because you know we managed to deploy um, this new technology while seeing some pretty spectacular cost reductions. I mean, costs coming down by around seventy percent over you know the last decade. I think the problem that we've got right now, though, is that there seems to be an expectation in some markets that, that the cost of of energy from things like offshore wind will only ever go downwards. And where everything else in society is somehow having to respond to, you know, things like increasing um, commodity prices, things like increasing interest rates, just other inflationary pressures, for some reason there seems to be a reluctance on the part of many policymakers to accept that the same has to happen with the cost of producing renewable energy. And I think that that's that's something that has to change. There has to be an, an ability for a fair price to be paid to these types of projects. So when we talk about problems in the supply chain, it's not that we don't have the technology, it's not that we don't have the manufacturing capability, it's not that the, the skills and the materials aren't there, it's that right now in some markets, the price that's being paid for the product doesn't allow those um, participants to be economically sustainable. And that has to change because in most markets, 
you know, the, the, yeah, 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 yeah. It has to change. And, and Jonathan, if I might say so, in my more than 35, 40 years of uh, analysing markets, uh, I've heard many management people say several, say the same things, whether it's bricks, cement, uh, uh, or energy. Uh, but but just moving on, the, the, the one other thing, and, and that's not to dismiss it. I mean, I do think it's a very real issue, but it's not an uncommon business problem, let's face it. Um, the, the, the other thing I just wanted to cover off on was transmission. Uh, we had uh, some of the onshore guys saying to us, well, uh, here in Australia, we've completely underestimated the uh, amount of off the contribution that transmission is going to make to the delivered price for offshore wind. Uh, I just uh, wondered uh, how you were thinking about that. So sorry, David. The the question is the the, the cost to upgrade the transmission system. Well, the 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 the, 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 the installation of um of under underwater transmission is a lot more expensive than on land transmission, and it's generally when we talk about the LCOE of of offshore wind. I guess it's not always covered uh, the transmission component of it. I mean, uh, I just wondered what you think about that and whether you think it's something that governments should be supplying or something that the project owners uh, should have to finance themselves. Well, I, I mean, I think it depends a bit on the market. I mean, the f first thing I would say in terms of, I mean, it is true that, you know, building an offshore transmission link um, is probably more expensive than building an onshore one. But in most of the mature markets, the cost of that is already built into the cost of electricity. So in the UK, for example, which is where you know most of the deployment has been, um, you know the, the cost of building the, the the transmission setup offshore is is costed. So you know I, I think that there's no surprises there. What 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 I think has has um, I think always been a problem for for offshore wind and actually for renewables generally is that. The approach to planning the transmission system has maybe been um, a, a bit too cautious in that there's always been an obsession with avoiding stranded assets um, and therefore been a lack of anticipatory investment in the grid. And what that means basically is you're building grid connection reinforcement onshore on a project by project, just in time basis, which usually means the grid becomes the bottleneck that slows the whole industry down. And practically every market at some point eh, is going to find that to be an issue. And so m more than the cost of transmission, I think it's the timing and the anticipatory strategic planning of the network that is the issue. Now, some markets are getting their head around that and, and doing the right thing. In fact, right here in Victoria, eh, which is where I am right now in Melbourne, you know, with VicGrid, they're actually talking about Know, putting in place a two and a half gigawatt offshore wind connection point down in Gippsland in anticipation of whatever projects are coming in. So they're starting to do that in advance, which is really smart, I think. And that's what more and more markets will have to do. Because the reality is in the energy transition, it, you know, renewable energy is an inevitability if you want to decarbonize the power sector. And so the transmission system has to adapt to that. And the best way to do that is to by setting out a strategically planned network and investing in it in advance. Otherwise, you slow the whole energy transition down and probably end up making it more expensive in the end. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree with this. I think that that's generally well said and increasingly recognised, but it's almost been recognised too late uh, around the world. Yeah. Um, or at least it's going to slow the whole thing down. Just coming back to Australia, I mean, one of my uh, perpetual questions, which I've never had satisfactorily answered, is, is, is why do offshore wind in Australia? Sure, it's got a great offshore wind resource, although a lot of the water is actually fairly deep. Uh, other, but, 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 you know, relatively speaking, the onshore resource is also fantastic and the relative advantages of being offshore just don't seem to be there. There's so much onshore land as when I compare that with, uh, you know, Asia, Taiwan or Japan or India or, or, and in Europe, it just seems that the prospects for offshore wind, uh, there's so much more need for it there, relatively speaking. How do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think there's pr probably a you know a few factors to consider. I mean, f first thing is that a offshore wind is you know highly complementary to the other forms of renewables, um, you know, in that it's providing massive quantities of low carbon power at quite a reliable way with quite a high load factor and providing power at times of the day that maybe some of the other renewables are not, and times of the year that some of the other renewables are not. So it's providing a quality of power supply that the onshore renewables um, isn't always able to give. The, the, the other thing about offshore wind, which makes sense in you know, parts of Australia, is you're able to deploy these projects offshore, far enough offshore that you know um, that it's locally acceptable, but relatively close then to these huge demand centres right on the coast. So the you know the level of transmission work that's needed to get the power to where, it, where, where it's going to be consumed, uh, you know, can be quite straightforward. Um, so that's also important. And the third thing, which is a relevant factor, is that not only is offshore providing large quantities of reliable, you know, low-cost electricity where it's needed, but it's also able to support economic activity and job creation and industrial benefit, you know, usually in coastal towns and post-industrial towns, that actually really could do with that type of investment. So when you bring those three things together, offshore wind actually can make an awful lot of sense. And there are parts of Australia, particularly down in Victoria, where you've got thermal plant coming to the end of its life, where actually offshore wind slots perfectly then into that system to fill the gap that's left and do it in a way which is decarbonising the system uh, and also producing a lot of economic benefits in the meantime. Sure. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned local investment, but no one's really suggesting we're going to make turbines or rotor blades in Australia. And I guess a, a, a little bit of a question around that is, you know, you've got 250 people. doesn't sound like you've had too much trouble getting them. But I hear uh, in Australia that there's a bit of an issue with a skill shortage. I mean, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which is obviously going to lead to a massive surge in demand. You've got uh, repower 55 or fit for 55 in Europe, uh, which will eventually lead to a bit of a surge there, one hopes. I mean, uh, you go, is the industry, you know, really doing, are you going to get the people you need? Well, well I mean, I think t t two things. First thing about what type of job creation are we talking about here in Australia? So, I mean, I would say that uh, I wouldn't uh, uh, discard the possibility that there will be manufacturing of certain components uh, here, especially components which is much more efficient to assemble and put together close to where they're being deployed. Uh, and that will create a lot of jobs. 
but also just you know once you invest in a large project and you create your operational port you're then supporting hundreds of high quality well-paid local jobs for decades to service that project directly and then even more hundreds or even thousands of jobs in and around that to you know service those people that are servicing the project so you are talking about relevant numbers in small coastal towns so if you go down to gippsland you go to somewhere like sale and you talk about those kind of numbers of high quality well-paid jobs that's relevant that you know that's quite a an important positive impact that can be made so i think you know i i do think the economic benefit is 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 you know quite significant and quite positive in terms of the available jonathan just on, just on that you know uh, uh without wanting to take too much do you have a number in the off the top of your head uh, for for the UK and I'd, I'd forgive you for not having it of how many of these maintenance jobs uh, there are already in the UK. Yeah, I mean, the, the, pr- probably in the UK overall, there's probably about thirty five thousand people working in offshore wind, of which probably uh, just under ten thousand will be working in you know operating, maintaining, running these offshore wind projects and offshore wind businesses. So it's quite a a big number already in the UK, which is being supported by the offshore wind sector. And the UK, by the way, is a market where they haven't necessarily went big on the heavy manufacturing. They've went big on the services and on the operations rather than on the, you know, the big heavy engineering, heavy manufacturing. So, you know, that gives you an, an example of how, how big it can be when you get the right volume in the system. Um, Absolutely. You're gone. So I was going to say, on the other point you made about skills and all the rest of it, I mean, it's a relevant point. And I mean, something that we are doing already here is engaging with universities, colleges, skills institutions, talking about the kind of skills and jobs that we need in the future to try and, you know, grow the capability uh, ahead of time, which is, you know, an important thing to do. What we're also able to do, I think, because of the, you know, the fact that Corio is a global offshore wind player, is we can deploy expertise, we can attract expertise to come um, where, where the projects are needed. And one of the really cool things actually about Corio is that we've actually got a number of people who have, you know, through you know working in Macquarie for many years, have been working in the UK, working in Taiwan, making the market there, involved in projects there, who've now come back home to Melbourne. And, they, you know, they already have. They're Australian people, local people with offshore wind expertise, who are coming back home now to help us grow the industry. And with a combination of those people, the other people that we have from our global business and the people we're able to attract them from analogous industries that we can retrain, you know, we're pretty confident that we can get what we need in the time frame that we need it. Sure enough. I personally think, as, as you put it, that employment in the industry and skills will grow uh, with the market. and. Uh, that that won't be a problem. Ultimately, it may be short term, up and down, but but not in the medium term. Just a couple of other uh, quick things, uh, Jonathan, if I could. You know, another general thing about the wind industry recently is that we've always been chasing uh, bigger and bigger capacity factors, whether it's onshore or offshore. Generally, by increasing the size of uh, turbines and making. Uh, I mean, but there seems to be a, a sort of thought that the industry needs to standardise on lesser models uh, and, and just turn them all out more like cookie cutters. What sort of size turbines and, and rotor lengths are we sort of, are you thinking for the for, for offshore markets generally and will it be any different here in Australia? 
Well, no, I mean, so firstly, take take the last part first. I think Australia um, should be at the state of the art. So it, whatever turbines are being deployed should be, you know, the, the, the larger end of the spectrum should be the state of the art because that's where you're getting the most efficient projects and that's where you're getting the lowest uh, cost of electricity for the consumer. Um, I, I do acknowledge that, uh, you know, it's been a bit of a, 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 a delicate balance over the past 10 years because on the one hand we've had to upscale the technology very quickly to drive down the cost but on the other hand in doing that um, we've caused you know quite a lot of issues in the supply chain because there's a lot of R&D and investment costs being made in each of these new platforms of turbines and then in all the logistics and all the other stuff that goes around that that then isn't really giving the time to pay back before you move on to the next version. And that, you know, I think that's part of the problem in our industry and part of the challenges in the supply chain is the fragility that that has caused. So I do think that we need to slow down a bit and stabilize a bit and give the supply chain time to recover their costs and to you know, optimize their efficiency on a platform before we move on. I also think, by the way, that as you know, you're getting bigger and bigger. It's a it's a game of diminishing returns. So actually, you know, the, the, the really profound changes have already happened. And with each subsequent upscaling, it, the benefits aren't quite as big. So that will also naturally uh, lend itself to slowing down a bit. Having said that, I do also think that by the end of this decade, we're going to be deploying 18 to 20 megawatt turbines with 250 meter plus rotors because that's just generally the way the market is going to move because it it, it, it will keep progressing, it will keep uh, optimising. 20 megawatts are certainly uh, a, a big piece of kit. Uh, it's, it's a huge piece of kit. Uh, I mean, when be, I thought the first project we ever built was sub three megawatts. And at that time, if someone had told us that within 10 years we'd be talking about planning for 20 megawatt projects, you probably would have struggled to believe that that was even physically possible. And here we are. So it's an industry that's always managed to surprise ourselves and others at how quickly we can um, grow the technology. Uh, Jonathan, I think uh, I just wind up with one general question. As far as I can tell, and I can't see all the 2022 statistics when I was quickly looking, that the industry seems to have slowed down globally in 2022 compared to 2021. And of course, China's been over half the offshore wind industry uh, for the last few years. What do you actually see as the um, uh, part A, as the global sort of installations over the next one, two, three years per year? And secondly, where does Australia rate, in your opinion, in terms of the uh, relative attractiveness in those regions? Sure. Okay. So, I mean, in terms of growth, I think you're right. There was a bit of a slowdown last year. I mean, it could be attributed to you know number of factors, it could, less activity in China, some kind of post-pandemic um uh, issues as well but you know i think the industry is rallying back what also happened by the way over those two years is the size of the the, the pipeline of projects it almost doubled in 2022 so it went from you know 430 to about 800 gigawatts of projects in the offshore pipeline so the, the although you know we had a slow year building we certainly didn't have a slow year in terms of planning for future projects and the projections are that you know we're going to uh, be somewhere around 350 gigawatts by the end of the decade in offshore wind, which means we're going to have to be building somewhere in the order of about 35 gigawatts per year on average 
over this decade. And that's going to be a massive challenge to do that. But that's the, the numbers that are being planned for in the industry. Now, in terms of where do I see Australia, I mean, I, I think that the, the prospects for growth in Australia are really strong. I think that the, the, you know, the, the federal government uh, obviously is you know, really now starting to, I think, help get the momentum going in the industry. And you know, these declared zones have really, really helped to, you know, to focus attention here. I think the state of Victoria is doing a fantastic job in terms of setting out what's almost like a textbook um, regulatory framework where they're setting credible targets. They're looking at the enablers that you need to make those targets happen, like investments in the grid, investments in the ports, the you know, route to market, things like contracts with difference. So they're mapping all that out really well. The Victorian government set a target of two gigawatts by 2032. I think we would beat that. I honestly think that probably, I mean, we alone with, we've got four gigawatts of projects off the coast of Victoria, we could have built by 2032. The first two and a half could be done by the end of this decade. And we're not the only um, developer who could say that. So I think that actually, um, that the, you know, if, if the Victorian government keeps moving the way it's moving, we're going to see by the end of this decade, several gigawatts deployed in Victoria and that will hopefully get this industry kick-started, and then you'll start to see the deployment through the next decade in Australia really ramping up. That's great. But, uh, I, uh, I also think myself, anyway, that other regions uh, have very strong appeals as well. <laughs> Jonathan, I think that will do us. Uh, 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 and But thank you very much for uh, talking to Energy Insiders. I look forward to following the progress of the offshore wind industry, which for my, in my mind, at least, if Japan ever worked it out, could, could be the saviour of their energy industry. Uh, and uh, I look forward to following Corio's progress. So, so thanks. So thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, David. Really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that offshore wind could be a big part of the Australian energy mix. And that was Jonathan Cole from Corio. Um, David, thank you very much for soldiering on in that interview. I dropped out as people would probably hear. I'm not too sure what quite happened to me. Um, probably something to do with the internet up where I live. But look, an interesting interview all the same. I was fascinated to hear him say that they thought that they could do a lot better than the Victoria government's uh, two gigawatt targets by 2032. But I guess if they're gonna do that, um, we all better get cracking. Uh, yes, I suppose that's right, Giles. And they're not the first people, I don't think, to actually say that that Victorian government target can be beat at this early stage. Uh, how positive it is for consumers uh, is the thing that remains to be seen. And uh, I don't remember if you, it, I don't know if you remember the old um, carpet advertisements about telling the price, and that's what we haven't heard yet. No, that's 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 right. And and uh, I'm sort of remain of the view that offshore wind really isn't where we should be focused in Australia. But nevertheless, uh, um, uh, nevertheless, there we are, and people certainly seem very keen uh, on it. Yes, well, you've never seen such an influx into the Australian energy market of um, major players. I mean, God, all, just about everyone is kind of here, all steady petrolers, some of the big oil giants, uh, you know, Corio, um, God, every, every man and his dog. I mean, perhaps they're sort of holding out their hat for sort of shekels from the government, but um, um, they're certainly very interested. Uh, absolutely. It kind of reminds you of hydrogen 18 months ago. But uh, meanwhile, more immediate uh, uh, news is, I suppose, the change of government here in New South Wales. 
Yes, well, that's the last holdout of the coalition in mainland Australia. The federal government's gone. The South Australian coalition government, which wasn't half bad for energy and climate, has gone. I've got to say that the New South Wales coalition government, as far as energy and climate went, was pretty damn good. Um, and Matt Keane was much admired, um, particularly for the establishment of the infrastructure roadmap, actually having a coherent plan to do what the obvious is, is make a plan for the um, retirement of the coal-fired generators. I'm not so convinced about what Labor thinks of this. They keep on talking about keeping Arari open. They keep on talking about buying Arari, the state government buying the biggest coal generator, which I would have thought would have been a bizarre idea and possibly full of all sorts of pit holes with liabilities and all sorts of other things. Um, but um, hopefully they keep on going with the current infrastructure roadmap. I'd like to add my uh, congratulations, uh, well, thoughts to Matt Keane, who was, I think, very brave in uh, putting his uh, the New South Wales infrastructure roadmap together. And I will say also that I'll tip my hat to Adam Searle, the previous uh, uh, energy minister uh, prior to Chris Minns, uh, opposition and shadow minister prior to Chris Minns taking office. Uh, who supported that plan and put the interests of New South Wales people. Uh, as someone who lives in New South Wales, I admire the, uh, both leaders of the party for, the, for that particular election and the way it was conducted. As Dominic Perrett had said, it was a contest of ideas. The ideas of Chris Minns, I suspect, aided by uh, the harsh feeling about memories of lockdown in the western suburbs, uh, have driven this election forward. But I do worry about the... Uh, anti-private uh, sector sort of stance that you hear from people like Prue Carr, uh, notwithstanding that she once worked for the New South Wales Premier's Department, she's the Deputy Leader of the Labor Party, and, and as you say, these thoughts that uh, buying back coal stations uh, and running them and being anti the private sector is something to which is probably putting too strong a word on it, but certainly anti-further privatisation. Uh, probably a better way is something to keep an eye on. But look, Chris Minns, uh, uh, I think, um, uh, you know, was identified a long time ago, by at least by me. You can see it on my Facebook pages as someone that might, might make a difference for <laughs> Labor. Uh, and I'd also say that, um, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Mookie uh, will, will likely has done a very good job uh, at keeping the government, previous government on its toes as shadow treasurer. But anyway, we're way off electricity uh, the question is uh, whether they do what does happen with the Raring. Uh, I uh, wrote a note this week myself looking at the uh, closure of Liddell that's coming up and it's untimely the closure in the sense that we still haven't got enough new wind and solar in New South Wales and because you know energy that we might have got from Queensland isn't going to be there because of the calide uh, uh, burnouts which we need to talk more about because of Intergen and also the transmission upgrades from Victoria aren't there so and there are constraints so it's hard to get the cheap power from victoria into new south wales when we need it so prices could still go up again this winter that's what i'm saying yeah look i was interested in your um note um on liddell and you say that not enough wind and solar was built in new south wales does that mean then that maybe matt Keane wasn't quite so good as we thought or was there other sort of issues sort of contributing to that i just think it takes time to get all these renewable energy zones together uh, we still haven't uh, yet shown how this batching progress in, uh, process in renewable energy zones um, is going to actually make the connection process faster. There are still definite transmission issues in New South Wales that, you, you know, I don't think we could have gone too much faster. In fact, I think the New South Wales uh, uh, plan really called for a slow, slightly slower build out. 
that then had to be accelerated once uh, things happened in Queensland and because of the ARAR enclosure being brought forward by a number of years. Mm. Let's talk, you mentioned Intergen there, the owners of the Calonite coal generator in Queensland, which rather spectacularly blew up um, in May 2021, I think it was, um, and has been under repair ever since. That was a controversial decision by the state government to throw some money at that, but it looks like it's all um, ending in tears because um, there's delays and one presumes there's massive cost overruns in the repair of this generator and um, they've now gone into administration. Um, I just wonder whether it's um, possible to say what all this means or is it just too early? I think it means that the Queensland government's going to have to take a bigger role in, in the ownership of uh, Calide uh, C and uh, the two units that are out of action, the one that blew up and the other one that's had uh, a, a very significant um, uh, problem that's keeping it out of action for months and months longer. I mean, the fact is that th th those units matter to the Queensland electricity price in the evening right now. Um, the, as far as I understand it, the, which is not very well, the insurance proceeds still haven't been, there's still an argument about it. The, as the Financial Review reported, the Queensland government still hasn't released its report into the incident, which happened nearly two years ago. That's not very satisfactory, I don't think, for anyone. Um, uh, Toshiba had, they weren't making the generating unit that uh, uh, any more had gone out of service. So Toshiba had to be specially recommissioned to, to build the new one. And rebuilding it was frankly a fairly silly idea uh, from beginning to end. And uh, I guess Intergen um, uh, has kind of said, well, hand it over to the Queensland government, your problem. David, I think that's a fairly tidy wrap of the day's events. It's just four days since our previous podcast, the excellent interview that you did with uh, Paul Simshauser from PowerLink. So um, those who haven't got around to listening to that, there's more to listen to. Um, and I think we've got a few really good interviews coming up over the next couple of weeks as well. So thank you, David, for holding the fort um, in this interview with uh, Corio CEO Jonathan Cole. Thank you very much to Jonathan for joining us in this podcast during his visit to Australia. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Epigen. Thanks, of course, to everybody out there listening. Please do send us your feedback and any suggestions for interviewees. And we'll be back very shortly with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.